Big Ten Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those wonderful ears. And if you're watching this on video, I appreciate those eyeballs as well. Today, I have the one and only, the modern seller herself, Amy Franco. How you doing, Amy? I am awesome. And I'm glad to have everybody's ears and eyeballs today, too. It's great to be here. Yeah. This is a good group, Amy. They're good. They, they require a lot. So I'm going to ask you some tough questions as we go through this. But before we jump into anything, tell the folks a little bit who you are and why you're so awesome at sales. <laughs> All right. Let, let's start with the first question. So, um, so the first 10 years of my career, I spent in tech. I worked for IBM and for Lenovo. Lenovo. I was a quota-carrying salesperson. And then 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I just took a big old pivot into entrepreneurship. I've always been entrepreneurial at heart. I am the oldest of five children, and I've always believed I was either going to start something or lead something. And so I uh, pivoted into entrepreneurship, started my own learning and development firm that has morphed and changed and evolved over the years. And uh, what it looks like now is I get to work with CEOs, sales leaders, and their teams on everything related to sales strategy and sales skill development. And I absolutely love it. It jazzes me up every day to get out of bed and do this kind of work. You know, it's interesting because we have very similar, it's a similar track we have. And the timing's also kind of scary because I also came from the tech side, just like you. And then about in 2008, when did you leave corporate America? 2007. Yeah. Look at that. I'm right behind you. Yep. And so what have you discovered before we jump into the topic of the modern seller? You know, what, share some insights with the audience about your, your take on, you know, what it took to kind of say, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing. And then you know, maybe walk through some of the things you had to do or some moments you go, I didn't know I needed to know that or do that. Just kind of the the trials and tribulations of going solo. I really vividly remember. So I was uh, I was 31 when I left corporate and went solo. I very vividly remember the conversation with myself and also with my family about making this change. And I very vividly remember saying, I didn't want to not do it. And then look back when I turned 40 or 45 to say, shoulda, woulda, coulda. And I really vividly remember that to say, you know what? I'm going to take this shot. What's the worst thing that could happen? It crashes and burns, doesn't work out, and I can go go get another sales role, right? Now, that was before like the whole economy crashed and all that. So, you know, a little, <laughs> a little bit of ignorance is bliss with that kind of stuff, right? You never know what's coming around the corner. So that is certainly something that I learned. You never know what's coming around the corner, but you learn and you get equipped to deal with it. Um, so that's certainly one lesson. And then I would say a second lesson, I get asked this question all the time. I don't know if you get asked this too, but people will say, you know, what's the, the number one skill that, that you've needed to lean on to be successful and hands down the top skill is being able to sell as an entrepreneur. So I've done enterprise selling, I've done entrepreneurial selling, professional services selling. So I've learned all different kinds of selling in all different kinds of industries, but that's hands down the, the number one skill. So everyone who's listening and watching, you're building what I think is the number one skill that you need. 
There it is. You know, it's funny because I, I, I'm going to differ with you, but only slightly. Yeah. Only because I've learned my lesson on my side. And that is, I thought it was selling, which is very necessary. But I'm, I'm, I've now moved sales to number two slot. Interesting. And marketing, marketing to the number one slot. All right. Because Let's nobody, hear it. <laughs> because if nobody knows you exist, it doesn't matter. But one could argue that prospecting is a form of marketing, but you need to know how to sell in order to prospect. So one could argue that maybe they're right there, Amy. How about they're right well, there? Well, you know, I, I think, no, I love that that train of thought because there's it, you're 100% right. If people don't know that we exist, we can't even get the conversations going, right? Um, but I think that also speaks to sellers and we talk about you know modern selling skills modern sellers today need to be educated and intelligent about marketing and and vice versa if you're not you're you're missing out on an entirely important skill set that you need and something you just need to be intelligent about love it thank you for teeing up such a beautiful segue into the modern <laughs> seller so you know let's talk about because you know um we if you look at the last, I don't know, the trajectory, last 15, 20 years of selling, I mean, that's, we've already seen a lot of disruption in the way people buy, mostly because consumers buy differently. What are some of the, like the top two or three things you've seen that have really shifted in how the modern seller sells in order to, I guess, accommodate today's intelligent buyer? Yeah, um, I, I would say, I think our the conversation we just had about the intelligence around marketing is, is one of those important critical factors. But I, I would say it's really easy to get sucked into all the bright, shiny objects of selling, all the technology that's available to us, everything that we could be filling our day with. But when I look at my, my territory, my book of business, every single one of my opportunities has come because of a conversation of some kind. Someone, it's, Someone has an interest or a problem to solve that I might be able to help them with. So I would challenge sellers to think about the foundational pieces and the, the, the real basics of what makes for great selling. You have to be really smart. I think you have to be smarter than ever before about your industry, your company, your solutions. You, you can't skate on not, not knowing those things and not allowing the bright, shiny objects to be a distractor. Yeah, I like that. I, I'm, I'm going to have you regress a little bit, if, if possible. And that is, I want you to go back to 2007, Yeah. right? You've made that decision. Because I think this will be important for people who may be thinking about, you know, going it alone. 2007, you make the decision. You high-five yourself. You talk to your family. They high-five you back. And now you're doing it. Now you're in it. You know, give me some of the tactical things you had to start doing at the beginning that, you know, attribute to your success today. Yeah. So so one thing that I'll share, it's a, maybe just a little bit of a higher level thought before the, the tactical piece is when I worked for big name organizations like IBM and Lenovo, um, it's really easy for our identities to get wrapped up in the logos on our business cards. And, I know where you're going. I know where you're right? going. I, love I think it. you and I may I have had this going. conversation no. behind backstage at Outbound too. But it was really, it was, um, I had to change my perception and kind of set my ego aside because now all of a sudden I'm selling myself. 
I'm selling my expertise, I'm selling myself. And I would argue even sellers who are in organizations right now, you're selling yourself as much as you're selling your organization. So, so stay with me here, even if you work within an organization right now. Um, that was a big shift. And so what that meant is I had to invest more in myself. I, I did not have a, a big company name behind me anymore. I had to invest in myself. So I would say the, the first couple of things, very tactical things I did out of the gate, I hired a business coach to help me get off the ground on the right foot. I made that investment. So what she did was help me with, with the basics around business planning, uh, target market identification. Even though I did that kind of stuff as part of my role, having someone else guide you through it. Um, and then I would say that the, the other thing that I did was uh, writing the book, and that was a little bit further down the road, but writing the book was really a big, uh, a, a big turning point for me. And just the accountability that goes along with that. You don't have somebody holding a quota over your head. You go from somebody, you know, somebody in a role where you have certain metrics that you have to meet to being the leader who sets the metrics and also has to meet the metrics. And that's just a different way of thinking. That is, you know, on the let's let's go back to the business coach. I think yeah. it's really interesting. Uh, I mean, it's it's an obvious layup, right, to invest in yourself. And you know, you like me, you know, we knew a lot of stuff. I mean, we were pretty smart already when we were in corporate America. But then when you're on your own and you realize you don't have a brand identity, nobody knows who you are. You have to kind of sell it all to get uh, uh, from the beginning. You do need somebody to kind of from the outside looking in to kind of guide you. And there's some people out there who do that. You know, walk me through some of the things that your business coach did for you that really helped you. Like, oh, this really kind of, hit, you know, helped me hit the hyper pad quickly. Yeah. So, um, so I have hired a variety of coaches over the years. So I, the one thing that I learned is, you know, you might hire one coach that gets you to a certain point and then you are looking at some other type of growth or maybe you're, you're pivoting your offerings and you need someone else. So, so great the, insight, yeah, by the way, really, great insight. I'm, I'm I'm glad you said that. I'm really, I'm so glad you said that because it's like, it isn't a marriage. You know what I mean? You're like, you're, you're together for a little bit of the journey, then you split. Yeah. You, know, you won't go your separate ways. I love that. And it's okay to do that. So, so I worked with my first business coach for maybe a year. <clears throat> and what she really helped me to do was put the structure around owning and running a business. Not unlike someone who's in a sales role or a sales leadership role, having to put the structure around your team or around your clients and your territory. So you need those guardrails in that structure. That's the thing that she really helped me to do because I, I think there's this misnomer that when you, uh, and I think sales is a very, it can be a very entrepreneurial profession. So there's a lot of, a lot of good parallels here. When you have a wide open set of opportunity, that can be a little paralyzing because you don't quite know where to go or what to do and you, you feel like you're running on a treadmill. But having structures in, in the business, so a sales plan, a business plan, the, te the right technology structures actually gives you the freedom to be more successful. So, so that's really what she helped me do was to put the structures in place. And then as I grow, uh, grew and evolved, I, I, I've hired different coaches all along the way. So you talked about the, you know, a sales structure, uh, you know, business, the business process and maybe the tech structure. Yeah. And I, I would assume in there somewhere into like, you know, identifying your target market, who to go after. Because as you say, if you try to go after everybody, you go after nobody. True. Yep. So so when I, when I look at my business today, so I spend my time probably in three primary verticals. 
I work a lot in professional services. I work in tech and I work in manufacturing. And those are big verticals in and of themselves. And um, one of the things that I learned very early on, just going back to my IBM and Lenovo days, um, and for those of you listening out here that maybe you sell a product or a specific solution set, I really sold a commodity product at the end of the day. I sold personal computing hardware. And what I had to figure out was what really made me distinct and different. So I think this goes back to your marketing comment, Victor. Um, I could be like everybody else and sell strictly on price and it would be a race to the bottom because it was a very price sensitive set of products I sold. But what I figured out was, this goes to the target market conversation, I could target, I sold into education, I could target schools that really valued higher end technology and wanted to create education programs that leverage technology. And that started to become a very clear target market for me. And what that did was it really helped me to focus my efforts, my prospecting efforts, marketing efforts, what have you. And those were really, really excellent, deep relationships. And that's how I was able to make my number in, in a commodity marketplace. So I've I taken those same learnings and I've been able to, to kind of tweak it a little bit as an entrepreneur. But that same basic principle is how can you find that distinction in your marketplace that helps you to stand out? See, see that phrase right there, you know, help me add some Amy flavor to this one. And that is, <laughs> I'll do my you best. Know, when, when you go after a market, let's say it's the educational market, right? Yeah. And there, you begin to see, I think, when you're really hyper focused on something, even if you're selling a commodity like product, you begin to see some nuances because you're so hyper focused there. You begin to see nuances and you incorporate that into your your sales presentation, your, your value positioning, the whole bit. Tell me what, that's where I want you to add the Amy flavor. Yeah. It's like, where do you, how did you see that? What did you find when you hyper-focused on something? When I hyper-focused on that, I would say a couple of really great things happened. I was able to find the right, um, I sold through the channel. I was able to find the right business partners that, we, that were non-competitive that we could go to market together. So mm. I was able to really amplify what I was doing by finding business partners that wanted to work in the same markets and we really wanted to create special programs that, that helped us all to win. So I think that's um, it's the idea of supply chain thinking and looking at all the different pieces of your supply, um, external, internal, and how do you put those together in a way that makes the most sense for your customers and, and helps them to win because they could stand out. I would say that's a nuance um, that I've learned over the years. It's, um, it's not as much about me and what success I can create for myself. It's turning it so that all the conversations that we're having are more about what's in it for the client or the customer. And I know that that probably sounds kind of obvious on the surface. We, you know, we talk about that all the time, but as a sales professional or as an entrepreneur, are we really kind of looking with our own critical eye on ourselves? Like how, how are we, how are we doing that? And are we asking the questions or saying the things that really help them to know that we have their best interest? So I would say those, those are a couple of the, couple of the more nuanced things and maybe one last nuanced thing. I think this is, this is a confidence thing and it's having to find your own voice and your own confidence because we're selling confidence as much as we're selling a solution, whatever your solution happens to be. And 
they, our customers need to know that we're really confident in what we're doing. No, I, I agree with that. I think the three things are very interesting. So, you know, you reminded me like uh, I used to work with bars, value-added resellers, oh, yeah. right? Uh-huh. And what you're talking about is how do you find partners that are not competing against you, but maybe can complement what you have to offer. And maybe they have the inroads into whatever market you're trying to go after. So I love that thought. That's really shortcutting your path to success. So I love that. The the thing you mentioned about, yeah, it's obvious. We should think about what the customer is thinking about. I, yeah, it's obvious, but it's amazing how many people don't do it, right? I've been guilty of it, right? It's like, oh, I've, been, I've been thinking about, yes. I'm in my own head, and I got to get out of my own head. Yeah, I remember um, uh, the book by Matt Cannon, which I still think is one of the best books ever written on sale, on consultative selling. He always talked about a PIP. And I think it was a performance improvement proposal. Then that is that you present something that's going to improve their margins, right? In other words, increase their revenue, reduce their costs, expand their market share. And you look at it from that perspective. And that takes you out of, as you say, the race to the bottom on the price death spiral. And then the third thing you just mentioned, I think is interesting because uh, Brent Adamson said, it's not what customers know, it's how they feel about what they know. And that's the confidence. And they look to people like, they look to salespeople to say, here's why you should do it. Talk about the, expand on that one, because I think that's really an interesting, I hate to use the word nuance again, but there's a nuance there, right? Yeah. That it's not so much that they know, is that they have to feel comfortable about what they know. So I had this really interesting conversation with, a, it was a prospective client at the time. And now we, they've been working with me for probably well over a year at this point. So you, you know that you have earned some kind of trust when a prospective client, they're, they're just telling you all kinds of stuff, right? And there maybe isn't a, a category for each of those things, but as, as a listener, you're, you're taking notes. I always take handwritten notes, by the way. I find that I just retain it better and I can organize it better after the fact. But you, ha- you have customers coming at you and this, co- this client was just telling me all kinds of stuff about the business. And in the moment, I couldn't even process all of it. I could just take, take the notes down and then go back later. So I take all these notes down after maybe 30 minutes of conversation. That's the confidence and trust. So it's the inner confidence to say, all right, I don't have to figure all this out in the moment. I just need to listen and take the notes and I'll process it later. But then I came back to them about a week or so after that because my, my little productivity hack, I don't know who I've learned this from, but anytime I can set the next conversation in the call that I'm in, I want to do that because it saves me months of emails and phone calls trying to get the next one scheduled. But anyhow, I come back you know, a week or so later, and what I've done is I've taken what the client has shared, I organized it into categories of what I heard them say, and then I added my own thoughts to it. And I presented that back to him. And he said, are you kidding me? I basically threw spaghetti at the wall, and you took it all apart and organized it, and helped me to understand and clarify everything here. And then you added your own thoughts. He's like, I knew I gave you, like just threw a mess at you when I was telling you this. And that, like, so back to, to Brett's comments there, I think that's the, the, the feeling that we can elicit with a client, with a customer. They know that we know our stuff, but now they also knew that I really heard and helped them to organize their thoughts. No, I think you helped them organize their spaghetti. I think that should be the title of your next speech, <laughs> Organizing Spaghetti. I love that visual. Today I want to talk about organizing spaghetti. That's, that's a great opening. I that's a great keynote, Victor. We, we can take it on the road. Yeah, that's yours, man. That's yours. 
What I do, I organize spaghetti. You right. got a mess, I fix your mess. So <laughs> that's funny. The other thing, I, you know, I love the fact that that is that is really funny. It's a great visual, organizing spaghetti. <laughs> oh, I love that. The other thing I think was interesting is that, you know, the, 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 the takeaway from a sales standpoint is when you talked about taking notes and you didn't feel like you had to answer there. Yeah. You know, you can go back and regroup. <clears throat> but it's interesting how that slowing down of that process as the as the anecdote goes allows you to speed up the sale yeah because when you came back the second time he's like having these moments like you've organized my spaghetti and like you're the person i want to work with and you know you can move faster through that sales cycle and the really other interesting part about this that maybe speaks to the entrepreneurial side of things or different industries that we work in i did not have a background in their particular industry Mm -hmm. uh, you know, coming from a tech background, and maybe you run into this too, where a client might say, well, what do you really know about our industry? You've not been, you've not lived in our industry, but that I, I, I don't buy into that line of thinking. I, I think if you really want to learn and be successful in an industry, you can, it might take you a few more steps to get there. But what I showed to that client was I didn't need to know, be knee deep in their industry to still mm -hmm. understand what they were dealing with. And quite honestly, a lot of those same challenges I see across different types of industries, which ultimately becomes a competitive advantage when they hire me. My, I, I think, yes, Amy, big yes on that one. <laughs> uh, uh, because because as, as trainers, we get to see all these different markets, right? That these, these different models. And then you start seeing the common thread, yeah. the red thread that runs through all of them. And when somebody says, Victor, you don't understand my industry, I'm like, that's exactly why you should hire me. Yes. I always, you know, I, I always love that Grant Cardone line, lean in the direction of the objection. That's exactly why you should hire me, because I can give you a perspective that maybe you don't have, because they're too close to the painting, so to speak. Yep. And so I love that. And by the way, so getting back to entrepreneur, I don't want, I don't want to miss, uh, miss this one. Yeah, sure. So you said target market, uh, when you got a business coach, they helped you with the structures. Mm -hmm. Then you said that writing a book... This is interesting that writing a book was actually beneficial as well. And for, for those listening who might think, well, how does that help me? Even if I'm a salesperson, uh, it doesn't have to be a book. It could be something else. But talk to me about writing a book and what that did for you. Yep. But I first have to say, you all noticed how Victor just organized the spaghetti coming back around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I got it. notes. I got, I got, I got notes. I, I got notes. I love it. I love it. Um, so so write, writing the book was a real turning point for me because it was something that I always wanted to do. I, I grew up, a, I'm a big reader, a big writer, just even as a kid, I think it was always in me to, to do something like this. But what I, and I, I was at the point I was ready to write the book. People always say, well, how did you come up with the topic? The topic kind of found me, I would say, and, and the title found me. Um, I just, the title just came to me as I was, you know, just doing something non-work related, I'm sure. But um, the book was a real game changer because it helped me to organize around a theme or a topic that I wanted to put out to market. And it was an excellent challenge for me to push me out of my comfort zone, to put something out there that I, in a, in a medium I had never done before. Um, I hired a coach, as uh, you'll, you'll get the theme here. I hired a coach. They were the publisher. They were my book publisher, but uh, the, the chief publishing officer was also my coach. And I will tell you, I would not show up to a meeting with my coach without at least having a chapter written or something written that I could, could 
work through with him. So that was some of the tactics that helped me get there. But I would say from kind of a big picture strategic standpoint, um, it it elevated my brand in the marketplace. So even if you're working inside an organization right now, you can certainly leverage your organization's resources. You could also write blogs. You could write eBooks. You don't have to write a long form book. But something that helps you put your thoughts out there that you're also willing to be challenged on, right? That you can have dialogue with people in the marketplace and, and clients and prospective clients. So it's um, it, it, if I was here, it brought me up to here. And I think anybody who wants to do it, if you really want to do it and you're committed to making it happen and seeing it through, it could be a real game changer for you too. Yeah, I think it helps in so many ways. You know, not just because you want to be a consultant or speak and you want to write a book. The it, it allows you want to organize your thoughts. It also highlights what you know and you don't yep. know. You know, and I think that's an interesting. By the way, my, my book titles find me as well, and they pop up in the most unusual yes. ways when I'm not thinking about it. So yeah, and they're like, oh, that was <laughs> usually when I'm mowing the lawn. That's just between us, right? Uh, but but I think it's interesting that I mean it's important that people consider even if you're a salesperson or an entrepreneur or you know a small business owner just by writing blogs I think that helps clarify your thoughts what you don't know and it's also great marketing right because people searching those topics yeah. you know how did you choose some of the topics in the book like you know when you when you're writing the modern seller the book you know what was like the yeah, this is why I got to write this book. This is what I want to tell people. Give me that synopsis. Yeah. And you know there there's a, there are a lot of great sales books out there, right? Like you can, there's so many out in the marketplace. So what is it that makes my voice unique or my thought process unique? I think what, what, what has helped me to be uniquely positioned in the marketplace is sort of my intersection of enterprise and entrepreneurial selling and also having a learning and development background. I've really been in the learning and development field for the past 15 plus years. Um, so that, so that lens of being in learning and development, and I learned it just by doing. I don't. I'm not degreed in it. I, I just. I learned it by doing and, and diving in and studying it. But that's sort of a unique set of lenses that I can apply to the sales industry and sales organizations. But what I was seeing uh, through that lens of learning and development, the the everyday tactical skills of selling are not going to go away. We need to be excellent at prospecting, at qualifying, at presenting, all all of those things throughout the sales process, right? But what I had started to notice were were the organization of those skills and then some of what I call the skills behind the skills that really stellar sales professionals and sales leaders have. So I organize them into five capabilities. Someone who really embraces modern selling, they are committed to being agile They are committed to learning to be entrepreneurial. Uh, They are holistic. They are social. And they are also an ambassador. And those are kind of meta skills behind the scenes that if you work on those as an individual or if you're a sales leader, you're coaching these into your teams, they're going to be even better at the everyday tactical skills of selling. So so that was a little bit of the catalyst for me. I, I had noticed that. And then again, kind of back to this idea of organizing thoughts and organizing into themes. I wanted to present it in a way that if you were a seller or a sales leader or someone who's in sales enablement, it could be like a field guide for you. It's very, very practical with specific things you can do and try take action. 
Big Ten Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. Yeah, I, you know, I, you know, how do you feel? I was talking to, I mentioned before we got started this interview that um, I was talking to Brandon Bornanson over at Seamless.ai. And one of, the, one of the topics we touched on was, you know, how do you motivate slash keep your team you know, you know, properly skilled up. And so this kind of hits that a little bit. What have you been finding in terms of preparation, let's say for salespeople specifically, you know, are they prepared, not prepared? Are companies training more today, doing less training? What are you seeing? I'm seeing two pretty distinct camps right now. Um, if I could say maybe an underlying theme that I'm seeing on, on the success side of the equation it doesn't matter if it's a $20 million company, a $100 million company, or a billion-dollar company. The success, and you won't be surprised to hear this, but the success comes from having somebody in a significant leadership role who really champions what you're doing, whether it's the CEO or the chief sales officer or whatever the appropriate role is. If you don't have that individual and his or her direct team, really championing what you're doing in an organization, it's not going to be successful in the long run. Um, so, so that leads me to kind of the two distinct camps. I'm having conversations with CEOs and chief sales officers in one camp saying, my team's killing it. Like there are so many orders coming in and there's so much going on. We don't even have supply to, we don't have, it might be people supply, so in professional services, we don't have enough staff or we don't have enough product to even fulfill what's coming in the door. And so I'm going to I'm going to put a pause on this and let let's see what let's see what the next 6 months or the next year brings us. I'm going to put my kind of just we're just going to we're going to we're going to keep with the status quo, right? Which is our biggest competitor, right? Status quo in inertia. The other camp is the camp of CEOs and sales officers who say, "Yes, I'm seeing those same things." However, we have big growth plans. We want to be positioned well for the future. We don't want to be complacent. We're not going to wait and see. We're going to invest because we know we're going to keep our best people by investing. And when they have the right skills and they have the right motivation and coaching for the long term, we're going to get to those growth goals. And it's pretty distinct. That's been my experience for, for the last, I'd say, six to 12 months. That's fascinating. Okay, so I have many questions for you. <laughs> many questions. Let me see if I can just tackle. I, per this. I prefer the latter camp, by the way, for anybody who's listening to oh, this. I, of course, <laughs> of course. The it, it's interesting how you're right that leader leadership and what leadership prioritizes makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. And so, so let's hit this one first. Maybe you can tie these two together. Uh, you mentioned in your your, your modern cell your five topics. You talked about holistic. You said the word holistic. What does that mean to you, and how would you apply it? And then let's have a little chat about that. All right. So that holistic piece takes two roads. And we could pick, pick the road that's more, more interesting to you. The first road is the individual, it, the person. You, the, the, we, only, we have a limited amount every day. We're gifted with you know, time, energy, motivation, resources. The choices that we make with those resources in a day or a week or a month or a year are what help to determine our results. 
So from an individual standpoint, are we making the right choices in how we design our life, design our days, the things that we fuel ourselves with in order to be successful in sales? I know a lot of salespeople that are fried and have had to really kind of make their way back from that state. So that's the first part of holistic. The second part of holistic, and we touched on this a little bit earlier with the, um, with the kind of VAR conversation, is the everything is connected in a supply chain. And I think we're, we're all experiencing this very, very uh, acutely right now. But everything that happens from positioning a solution to uh, the, the choices that our organizations make around their sales culture or their go-to-market strategy, all those things are connected. And if we look at things from the viewpoint of a supply chain and look for the places in the supply chain where we can either accelerate things or maybe there's a potential kink in the supply chain that could hurt a relationship or hurt our go-to-market strategy, whatever that is, we have to be thinking in that way, both as individual sellers and leaders. So, so those are the two roads uh, for, for holistic yeah, yeah, I find it I find it fascinating because you know it, we're also trying to talk balance here, right? How do you balance all this stuff out? Yeah. And so here's a here's a left field question coming at you: Is there a line between personal and professional in business today, or is it really just all blended? And we should, you know, businesses should just look at it as a whole. That I should care about my employees when they're here, but I also care when they're not here, and maybe you know. I'm just, I'll leave it that broad and yeah. then I have my thoughts. Yeah. My, it's a really good question. And my, my personal viewpoint on it is there, there is a bit, I think that there is a line. There's a line in the sense that um, now, now my personal and my professional life is very integrated. I could be going on a vacation and I might go meet with somebody who's a client because they happen to be there. But that's my choice as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. That isn't necessarily something that I would advocate for as a corporate policy or as a sales mm -hmm. team policy. So I do have to kind of separate those things in my mind. Sure. I do believe that there is a line. And I think that we do have a need of a, a bit of separation between the personal and the professional because things can get so blurred and blended that we can't feel like we have good focus on anything that we're doing. It's like, now, now I don't have children myself, but, but I do talk to people with kids who would say, you know, when I'm with my kids, I feel like I'm thinking about work. When, when I'm at work, I'm thinking about all the stuff that is, that is not happening yep. at home, right? And I think that's really natural. We're human beings. Sure. Um, this is a long answer to your question, but, but I do believe, especially as leadership in an organization, whether it's executive leadership or sales leadership, that have, having that line between personal and professional can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to preclude you really caring about your team. I don't think those things, the caring part doesn't have to be separated, but I do think the personal and professional could benefit from some separation. So I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on that too. No, I would, I would agree with that. I think the, I, I think the last part really, you closed me on the last part, the, the caring piece. And what we're starting to see is that a lot of CEOs, CXOs, are kind of saying, look, we care how our people feel about themselves. So let's just do some health programs, right? Sure. You know, maybe some, some education on how to eat and fitness and all that. Uh, other companies are saying, hey, uh, let's teach them about, you know, investment for how to use their 401k plans because, you know, they need to be financially stable when they walk out that door, whatever it may be. And I think that's, I, I love the word caring. 
you throw in there. It's like, I don't want to infringe on your space, but I want to show you that I care about you. So I'm going to mention these things, try to present the information to you, and then you decide if you want to take it. Make sense? It does. And, and I, it, we, it, I can also offer maybe another story or another lens on that idea of caring. And this is a leader, you know, comes from a leadership standpoint. And I forget what, I don't know what the latest statistic is right now, but I think it's, uh, you know, what, what is a, a VP of sales or a sales manager stays in their role maybe for two years, you know, whatever, whatever the current, current stats are. Um, so as a sales professional, you may have a new leader coming in to, onto your team every two to three years. And, and I personally experienced that working for large global organizations. It's just kind of the way the machine works sometimes. Um, but I think as a sales leader, you have a really unique opportunity to get to know the people on your team, you know, in a personal capacity, show them that you care, but you can show them that you care by helping them to navigate their deals, helping to show that you have their back and you're going to go to bat for them if they have a great business case for something. You know, you, you have to have the right ingredients on both sides, but I think there are ways that sales leaders can show that they care by helping their salespeople to be professional or to be successful in their professional jobs. Yeah, I like I like when they when they when they go. This is why I think they I want them to step over the line in terms of educating them on again whether it's health. That's why the word holistic caught my attention because that's like I just I care about you as a person uh, beyond the scope of this business thing we call nine to five. But I can't obviously infringe on that. But I can give you some maybe tools for you to cope with that. Yeah. So I, now let me just change the direction of this conversation. I want to know what makes Amy Franco just mad. Like, you know, oh. just what just makes you mad? Like, you see things and you're like, well, that makes me mad. Like, what, what makes me what mad? What makes you what me- Oh, Victor. <laughs> thought I'd switch directions on you. Maybe, maybe, maybe you should call my, maybe I could give you my sister's phone numbers. You could ask them what makes me mad or I call, call yeah. my husband. Um, oh, what? Oh, I guess, I guess in business. Let me, let, me, let me frame this better. Yeah. Maybe in business, some of the things you see that you go, oh. This really frustrates me. How's that? You know, why? You know, yes. stuff like that. Okay. So what frustrates me professionally, especially like if I'm working with clients or I've just experienced this in my own organization, when I see decisions being made at the top of the house around something you're going to change in the business, we're going to change comp plans. We're going to change how something is being paid out on or what we're going to focus our time and effort that's like, on. That's like the third rail, isn't it? This is the third rail. When you touch a comp plan, that's the third rail. Right? Especially if you're touching a comp plan, but you've never been on the receiving end of that comp plan. Um, oh my God. That drives me nuts because what I start to see is that could unravel your culture. And oh, yes. thinking about how the decisions that we're making at the top of the house in the business, what is the downhill impact, whether it's a good impact or an unintended negative impact, what's the downhill consequences on the business and have I thought about it? And if you make a decision that isn't in the best interest of the organization or you you figure it out after a quarter or two, but you're not willing to backtrack it and to say, you know what, this idea didn't work, we're going to peel it back. When I see stuff like that happening and leaders not taking ownership for it, that drives me nuts. Yeah, so two things, uh, the, the comp plans and taking ownership. The comp plan, I'm so with you on this. I had a marketing person tell me this back in the day. We're managing, I was managing salespeople, and she said, we should put a cap on salespeople's compensation. Uh-uh. I said, what? She had, 
That's exactly what I said. Uh-uh. <laughs> she goes, she goes, I go, what, what would make you say something like that? She goes, well, they're just, you know, when you, they close this deal, da 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 you know, they're just making so much money on commission. And at that point, I realized that's pure envy at this point. Have you have you ever come across that? Because I was I'm blown away when I heard that. Yes, I have come across it, and I've seen it, and it's usually someone in a role that is not has not gone through the process of earning that sale or earning that commission. Hundred percent, I've seen it. There was a book written back in, I think, the 90s. I still have, like, the original copy. It's so beat up. It was called the greatest GMP, The Greatest Motivational Principle. And it talked about you, you basically incentivize those behaviors you want to be repeated, right? Makes sense. And so every time I see leaders mess with a salesperson's comp plan, I'm always like, if you're going to mess with it, it better be a positive messing with. Like, improve, you know, more spiffs, more accelerators, more bonuses, whatever it may be. But I think when you take that away, I think that's a disincentive, and that can unravel a lot of things. And in today's market, uh, maybe it'd be interesting to talk about retention as well. Yeah. You know, what are you seeing in the realm of retention? Companies trying to hold on to good employees. What are you seeing? Yeah. So I'm seeing a couple things. The first, one of the things I'm seeing, and this is just more of a general industry statement, I am seeing companies holding on to employees that are not necessarily strong performers as in maybe they have not reached their quotas for the last number of years. Um, I'm seeing them hold on to them out of fear, basically, that they're not going to be able to find the right person to to replace. So that is such a okay, maybe just like pause on that one and just keep going down that rabbit hole. Like because that's it's, it's such a trap, isn't it? Yeah. And so how do you get out of that trap? If you have a manager in front of you right now that you know has a couple of low performers mm -hmm. and they will not pull the trigger on getting rid of them, you know, what would you tell them? What would, how would you guide them? Yeah. So, you know, so, so in the end, in, as a consultant, I really feel my job is to shine a light on these and to, and to, just, and to help leaders think through that and make those decisions. So I can't, you know, I can't, you know, I can't make the decision or execute <laughs> yeah. it, right? We just point. Right. Right there. You're right there. Right there. We just point. And, and, you shine lights. Right? I point. I know it's rude. Point. I go right there. <laughs> and and we, we are their we are their sounding board, right? Uh, I I joke. Uh, I I half joke that You're part, like a part of my yes, part of my role is as a, as a therapist. People love to vent. They say, "Oh, I feel better." I, 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 I would love to. I would love to see a visual of a of a CXO laying on the couch and you sitting there going, "Okay." Tell me, how do you feel about right? this right now? You, you know, just going through the whole process. That's funny. How do you feel, how do you it's a great feel, visual. How do you feel about these folks not making their quota? Um, so, so to your question, if I'm sitting with a leader and, and they have this issue, they nine times out of ten, they know it's a problem. It's it's the fear of going through the motion and the action of that person no longer being on their team. And, you know, there's, there's of course a human element to this. It's, you know, we're not robots. There's a human element to this. And of course I, you know, I've been in that spot and it's not a fun spot to be in. But my question to that leader is what are the, what are you seeing around this person or these individuals that are not successful? How is that impacting the rest of your organization? Let's talk through that. What are you seeing in, you know, customer service? What are you seeing in, uh, you know, fulfillment or whatever it is? Because most often that 
unless it's somebody who's just like, maybe they're having a slump, they're having a bad year, but they're really a great performer otherwise. You know, that's a different scenario. But more often than not, what's happening is it's creating a toxic environment and it's eroding sales culture. So my questions are, so what, what, let's play this out. What happens if this person was to no longer be here? How would you manage that person's territory, manage their duties? What would you do? Because sometimes people, they just need to talk through what they could do to take action once they make the decision. If they stay, what would you do? How would you have to manage all of this? And starting to see the dichotomy between those two decisions. Um, so, so that's typically my approach is to help them think through and visualize what, what could they do next. Um, with I love that, by the way. Before, before you move yeah, on, yeah, I, I love that because the, the, you, that's why you're a pro. The, it was great. To, you know, all these great questions, right? To lead them to a, an answer you already know they should have arrived at a long time ago. And I think it's interesting how, you know, I always look at salespeople as good clay or bad clay. Good clay you can mold, bad clay you can't. So there it is. But I think you highlight something that you highlighted something that's really important that we often don't really think through. And that is the negative impact of keeping somebody. And to me, that, that there's a bifurcation. There's a, there's a negative impact they're having on other people, which you've highlighted, right? That toxic environment. But it's also the opportunity cost. Like, how many deals are you losing because you have this? You person? read my mind. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And so I, th I think I, I saw it like that. But I think your solution, uh, doing the what-if scenario, I actually saw you actually holding your flip chart as they were laying on the couch, walking them through that. <laughs> What if? What would happen? You know that whole process, but it's really hard for them. And I think, I, I think the what I love what you said was that sometimes uh, they, they just need to talk it through with yeah. somebody who's objective and doesn't have a vested interest, you know, in the actual decision itself. And, and then there's the then there's the piece of it where they they get to that realization. It's like you know, I really I really do need to make this choice. I need to kind of re retool my team, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then, there, but there, there is the leap from the conversation to taking action, and that's probably the biggest jump, right? It's a, it's a difficult, uncomfortable set of conversations to have. It's one thing to be yes. talking about it with, with you or me. It's another thing to kind of jump across the chasm to actually do the conversations and, and go through yeah. it. So there's, there's some empathy that's there because point. I'm not usually the one that's sitting in the room doing that, right? Um, but then that's such, that's such that's such good advice, Amy. I don't mean to I no, cut no, you no, off, no. but it's such good advice. And I want to just put an, an exclamation point around it, highlight that thing, because the, maybe they don't know how to have the conversations, right? So what can we do to help them have that conversation? And that's where, like, this this is good good old good old role playing that everybody everybody has a love hate relationship with, where it's like, all right, let's let's sketch out what a conversation would look like. Let's sketch out the potential outcomes. Let, let's, let's talk through it. Um, all it, it's, it's a lot of the same things that we teach sales professionals on how to work with clients, but we're turning it inward on our organization. Um, and then gosh, almost every time there's that tough conversation to have you ever like you, you we build it up in our mind so much, but then a month later, it's like, oh my gosh, what took us so long? How like, yes, what yes. took us so long? <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's funny because it's one of those things. Why didn't I do this sooner? That's that's usually the result yeah. of that, right? I think it's always interesting how 
Uh, but but I love the role playing piece, even though it never goes the way you planned it. <laughs> it's it's good to at least try to get close there. So to close yeah. this out, we got to close out our conversation. We started out when you talked about moving into this entrepreneurial role of yours. You know, going solo. You talked about your target market. You found it, got it. Wrote your book, clarified your thoughts. Here are your messages to the market. And then you mentioned, I think a big one. I, I'd love to close out with this one, which is you talked about self accountability. You said accountability, and then for yourself, self accountability. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, what it took for you to stay focused. You know, what were some of the challenges you had to kind of, you know, follow through on certain things and maybe give some tips to the folks on how they can stay committed to the cause? For myself, when it comes to big goals, I need someone to help me stay accountable. I need an outside. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a disciplined person. But I also know that if I have somebody on the outside helping me to stay accountable, I'm going to stay accountable to that individual into the deadline. And that helps me to stay accountable to myself. So I would say know your own accountability style so that you can create the right environment. Great habits. A lot of it is just having the right environment around you. When my alarm went off at 515 this morning and I did not want to get up and go to cycling class. I just had to stop thinking and go do because if I sat there and I thought about it for long enough while I was laying in bed, I could have had a million excuses why not to go. So know your own accountability style and what you need and don't be afraid to get the accountability partner or the leader or hire the coach. I'd say that that might be the most uncomfortable thing to do is to ask somebody to help me stay accountable, but it, it creates great results for me. Um, and then are you surrounding yourself with the right people, the right environment to help you to be successful? So when my alarm goes off at five in the morning to go to cycling class, everything is set out for me. So I don't have to think I can just get up and do that's creating the right environment. So, so those are a couple of my thoughts around that. Yeah. I, I, I'm a fan of the book atomic habits. Oh, I haven't read that one, but, uh, I, but I've heard great things about oh. it. It is, a, it is a fantastic book. I've read it twice because it, it talks about removing friction yeah. from being able to do the things you don't want to do. And so I'll, I'll leave it at that. But anyway, uh, Amy, I think that's it for our time. I want to be respectful of your time. Let the folks know here at the Sales Influence Podcast where they can find out more about So two you. places. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know that you heard me on, uh, on this podcast. That would be great. And then also amyfranco.com. Love it. On that note, this is Victor Antonio signing off. Leave me some feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you hear me. After you do that, you go to Amy Franco's website, amyfranco.com. If you need somebody to organize your business spaghetti, that is the person to go to. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio always reminding you that selling ain't hard when you know how to organize spaghetti and you know how to do it. Take care. Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. 